One of the finds there was this, a stone, a beautifully, beautifully carved stone. And uh, um, the belief is, is that stone, which was on a pedestal at one point in time, is a very large stone, was the stone in which the synagogue ruler would pull out the scrolls and read the scriptures on. And so Jesus being with the disciples, traveling around the Sea of Galilee, often being on boats on the Sea of Galilee, it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility that Jesus was there in Magdala, and he often spoke in synagogues. He could have been right at that synagogue opening the scrolls on that very rock that's, that's, that's there. Welcome to The Search Podcast, where we have conversations about the big questions of God and life. I'm your host, Blaine Larson, and today we are tackling the first of a three-part series called Evidence from Israel. And I am joined by two veterans of the Search Podcast, Don Barkley and John Hopper. Don and John, thank you guys for being here. Well, you're welcome, Blaine. It's a privilege to be back. Yeah, it is really fun to be here with you, Blaine, and, and with Don as well. So, Well, I'm really looking forward to this uh, little mini-series that we've got. We've got a, a little bit of surprises at the end for everybody. Um, but what we're doing is is talking about really the evidence from the land of Israel that shows the reliability of the Bible and the stories and, um, and the history that it contains. And uh, I got this idea really when I went to Israel a couple years ago, and y'all have both been uh, as well. And, and I thought there are so many of my friends who have questions about the Bible and they have questions about Jesus. And I just thought, I wish I could take all of them on a trip. Mm. I wish I could have brought mm. them with us. And so uh, if you're listening to this, it's a free – no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to do our best to really bring bring the, the firsthand accounts of the things that we've seen while we were there that are important to the historical reliability of the Bible. So um, very excited to just hear from y'all and uh, and learn about the land of Israel. So John, you want to orient us to how we're going to sure. do these next couple episodes and then get us started? Yeah, that's great. So hopefully we take people a little bit on a virtual trip today. Yeah. And uh, Don and I had a chance to travel together uh, this last September uh, to Israel, and so we're gonna we aren't gonna be able to take our listeners to every spot that we went to, but uh, some of the spots and uh, and share um, some of the the things that we saw that do um, corroborate what we see in, in Scripture. And, and you know, the reason I think that's that's so important is that when we look at Christianity, we're talking about a, a God that showed up in human history. And we don't really see that when we look across sort of the variety of different religions, right? So often it's based in mythology um, or just philosophy. But with Christianity, we're talking about God showing up in history. And so um, being able to go to Israel, we were able to see evidence that the biblical story of God showing up in history is, is corroborated. So super exciting, super fun. And so we're we're really uh, excited to talk about kind of our trip. So we flew into Tel Aviv, like everybody has to fly into Tel Aviv, and <laughs> and uh, um, we traveled north from there, 
Uh, we spent a night to get a little bit of rest, but then um, we went. Our first real sort of sightseeing place that we went to was was Caesarea Maritima, so which is um, right on the um, Mediterranean Sea. Absolutely beautiful, and um, it's a city that Herod the Great built. So he built it uh, a, a couple decades before Jesus arrived on the scene, and it was not much of a of a city until he built it. And 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 when he built the city, he built a port, he built a palace, he built a huge amphitheater, a hippodrome where they do the chariot races. I mean, just the the whole <laughs> nine yards right there. He really built up the city. And as we came into Caesarea Maritima, so we. The first thing we saw was the amphitheater, so which he built 2,000 years ago, right? this huge theater, and it's still there. Of course, they've reconstructed parts of it because it's still used as a theater today after all these years. It's, it's really something else to, to see these sort of massive stones sort of cascading down in this, you know, this sort of semicircle, right, this amphitheater. It's, 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 it's quite a sight to see. And, yeah, that's right. All the modern stuff there. It is the contrast, the old with the new. Yeah. Well, what's really interesting about that um, that amphitheater is that it is um, it's not directly referenced in scripture, but an event that took place at that amphitheater is. So, if we look in the in the book of Acts, we're told about Agrippa the the first, who was the grandson of Herod, and. Uh, and at that point in the the story of Acts, so, so Agrippa is reigning, and um, there's uh, some dynamics going on with the leadership in in uh, Sidon and 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 entire sort of up north, and um, and he's addressing a crowd there. Agrippa is, and, and Acts tells us about this, and it doesn't say specifically that it's in this amphitheater. Um, but it just says he's speaking to this large crowd in this sort of this big event. Well, where would that take place, right, in, in Caesarea? Well, it would be in that amphitheater there. And what's particularly telling sort of deal in the, or sort of fantastic, you might say, in, in the Acts account is that Agrippa um, gives this speech, um, and as a result of the speech, the crowd says, you are a God, basically, right? Like, these are the words of God, not the words of men. And Acts tells us that Agrippa did not, uh, sort of, he didn't say, no, 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 these aren't the words of God, sort of thing. He kind of drank all that, that adulation in, right? And immediately he's, he is struck by God um, and dies soon thereafter. Okay. Now, again, pretty, pretty fantastic story. So, but what we have, blame, which is really neat, is we have the writings of Josephus, who wrote later in the the first century, a Roman historian, and he speaks of this very account, and he says that it's in the in, in the theater, and he talks about the the um, the speech that was given, and. Uh, um, and the, the robe that he was wearing, and there's even a, a robe that's spoken of in, in the book of Acts, and it says the sun, sh- the morning sun sh- shone onto his uh, robe, and there's sort of the splendor there in his words, oh, you're from a god sort of thing. So, And, uh, and it, it says in Josephus' writings, it says, And presently his flatterers cried out, 
one from one place and another from another, that he was a God. And they, add, they added, be merciful to us, for before we thought you were a man, but now henceforth we see you are superior to mortal nature, right? And there in the writings of Josephus, it also says that the king did not rebuke them nor reject their flattery. (laughs) And then Josephus goes on and says, immediately a severe pain arose in his belly and he was taken away to his palace and he died five days later. So here we have this story in the book of Acts, which seems like a fantastic story. Could that really have happened? And yet later in the first century, when the historian Josephus writes about uh, just the history of the Jews, he mentions this particular event, and it matches up uh, directly with what uh, the Scripture has has to say. So that's the first thing we see coming into to Israel and Caesarea. And it's like, wow, there there it is, living history for us. Oh. This is very cool. Well, it's, yeah. you bring up one of the points that uh, I think everybody has to think through when you're when you're looking at the evidence we're going to talk about mm-hmm. and then comparing it with the Bible, which is you come to find out like all these places are real. The, mm-hmm. the stories, the all the history, and we can't know every single place because the Bible talks about a lot of places over a long time. But there's a lot that's like we know exactly where that happened and some of these places are mm-hmm. still around as we're going to talk about. So if it's reliable in those regards, then what do you do with the – the, the theological mm. implications of mm-hmm. the stories or the things that happen mm. uh, that, that we'll get to. And, and so that's the question. If it's truthful here, mm. is it also being truthful there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and, great. And in the same way, if it's not historically reliable, if there is no evidence, in fact, there, if we were to find contrary evidence, then the implications on the theological meaning would definitely be impacted. Mm-hmm. Big time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, Absolutely. where are we going next All right. on our trip? Well, a few hundred yards away, Don. We're just going to walk about 100 yards. <laughs> okay. And actually, actually, because that's where a replica of what I'm going to talk about yeah. is there. Um, but found in that very theater, in the stairway of all places, was the first inscriptional evidence of Pontius Pilate. Of course, people are familiar with Pontius Pilate. If they've ever, ever seen a movie or read the Bible about Jesus and his trials, um, there are some ancient writers that mentioned him like Tacitus and Tertullian and Philo. But until 1961, we didn't have any solid inscriptional evidence, archaeologically, of Pontius Pilate. Uh, But in 61, in the stairway, um, or in the seats, but most places say it was found in the stairway of the theater as kind of a secondary placement. Secondary placement means that it was not there at first. It's a dedication. What What the inscription says is a word that sounds like Tiberius, who was the current emperor of Rome. He was the emperor after Augustus. And so he's the Tiber- he's the emperor during the time of Jesus. Um, the word, the first word in the inscription says Tiberium. So it's not like exactly ti- Tiberius. And Tiberium sounds like, as experts say, a, a temple perhaps dedicated to Tiberius, who was called the son of God. And below it, it says Pontius Pilatus, Prefectus Judea. Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judea. And uh, what's cool about that is it confirmed kind of his title. After 41, the governors of Judea were called uh, procurators. 
In fact, Tacitus calls him a procurator. But this, but now everybody says, well, Tacitus got it wrong. Um, but um, we know now he's a prefect. He's called a prefect in, by Josephus, for instance. And now we have an inscriptional evidence that, that was, that's what he was. And so what it confirms is that uh, the Pontius Pilate really existed, which is so seeing something in solid rock <laughs> is is pretty cool. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the and when John and I went to the Israel Museum a few days later, we actually saw the real thing. It's about three feet high, about two feet wide. It's significant. It's really cool. There's a verse in John nineteen, a couple, a passage where in the um, where. Pilate, in trying Jesus, he, he said he must die because he—well, the crowd says he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God, talking about Jesus. When Pilate heard this, the text says, he was even more afraid. The last thing you want to do is get in trouble with the emperor. And so if there's a rival to the Son of God, then there's a motive to listen to the crowd and deal with this man. Um and it's interesting that the very stone says it's in honor of Tiberius. Interesting. So I think that's pretty cool. Do we know is one? Do we know how they date it? Because I can imagine somebody going, "Okay, how do we really know this is from there?" Is one of the the ways the word the prefect he was called a prefect? Is there any other way that we know this is first century? That's a good question. I I'll, I'll start by just saying, um, you know, there's a wide range of of uh, attitudes toward the biblical accounts. Mm -hmm. And I don't know of anyone who who doubts the authenticity of this as a first century reference to Pontius Pilate. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm, I would imagine that, that one of the ways that they would sort of date it to that period would be um, the script style, um, as well as the placement of that stone in the amphitheater, right? So right, they, right. Can, they can tell sort of when... You know, if it was put there consistently with other stones or whatever, they could say it, it came from that period. And they found it embedded in in a in a structure that was, in in many different ways, um, able to be dated, and uh, and it was all unearthed. I mean, if you if you went to Caesarea, as I understand, if you went to Caesarea fifty years ago, mm -hmm. you wouldn't you wouldn't see structures. You wouldn't see the the, the it was all underground. Is that wow. how you understand it too? You know, I'm not. I'm not so sure about that. I mean, Maybe you're, prob the you're probably right. I don't know how much. Was I think exposed. things like like the first time I went, which was I don't know, 12, 15 years ago, the theater was there, but the hippodrome. I don't remember the hippodrome being visible. It was really? smaller. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I don't. Uh, there, there. Every time I go, there's there's more. Um, unearthed, um, and when they talk about the pilot stone, they they talk about it being unearthed, which is interesting. It's underneath, and so it's hard to have if, if it were a fake or forgery, you'd have to you'd have to, you'd have to implant it in an ancient <laughs> structure, and then make sure that it's covered by layers of subsequent <laughs> sediment and dirt and rock. Well, and what's even more amazing about it at least as I understand Pilate, is that in the grand scheme of things, he was not really anybody important. Mm. And so – because sometimes people ask, well, why isn't there more evidence even for like Jesus, mm -hmm. which is completely different. But even for a guy like Pilate, why don't we have more about him? It's like it's amazing we have anything, anything. about him. Even Tacitus I understand says it. He, he doesn't say – when he mentions Pontius Pilate, 
in his annals, he 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 says, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, one of our procurators. It's like he has to identify mm. who 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 he's talking mm. about yeah. with his audience. Pretty interesting stuff. All right. Anything else at Caesarea? Uh, there's a lot, but we're not going to talk about it <laughs> for right. us. There is. I'll throw there one is. thing, and the thing that struck me was just how beautiful it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like it's right on the ocean, and right. mm-hmm. and the structures are so mm-hmm. they're you know they're just mm-hmm. they're just beautiful. Yeah, yeah they are it's beautiful. a really pretty yeah. place. One now, thing, yeah, one thing we learned there was that um, it's that was according to our guide was the place where the revolution of '66 kind of was sparked mm. and began. By the by, the Jewish um, zealot, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you remember that? Yeah. So, and I think another important point to bring up is why would that stone for Pontius Pilate be at that place? And it's because Herod, when he built the city, he built the palace there where he lived, but it's also where the sort of the governors over time lived. And so, at one point, Pilate was in in the summer when it got hot, that's where he was living. So that stone, that inscription would have been found there. So it's, it's right. sort of consistent. And as I understand it, the government, Roman governors preferred to live in this little Roman <laughs> port city along the Mediterranean, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Than up uh, where you you are looked on by the Jewish establishment as, as, as the evil invaders. Yeah, well, you go there and it's like it looks like a vacation spot. You can, mm-hmm. I mean, you can really right. see Absolutely. it's a palace yeah, yeah. on the ocean. Mm-hmm. It's the only, gorgeous. The only golf course in Israel is the Caesarea Golf Course. <laughs> yes. I, I I don't think it was established by Herod. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. I was going to make a joke about Anyway, mm. never mind. Yeah. <laughs> a boring golfing. <laughs> All right, so where All are right. we going next? Kind, yeah. Be kind to the golfers. Well, we traveled from, from Caesarea, and we were going to make our way towards uh, the region of Galilee. And, of course, along the way, there are so many different things. And, and, and one of the things, places that we went to was to Mount Carmel. And, um, you know, biblically, that's, uh, you know, it's of significance, particularly because that's where Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal, right? So um, so there's Elijah, and he's, he's tired of people sort of worshiping other gods. And so he essentially says, well, you know, bring all of your prophets that are um, worshiping. We often call it Baal or Baal. So, um, and says, hey, set up an altar and pray to, to your God to bring down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice that you're putting on the altar, and we'll see if your God's real. And I'll do the same thing. <laughs> so I'll, I'll build an altar, put a sacrifice. I'll even douse mine with water, right? And, and I'll call out to Yahweh and see if he will bring fire from heaven and consume the sacrifice. And so that's happening on, on Mount Carmel. And... Uh, um, so we were able to be on Mount Carmel. So just for our listeners, we, you know, we often talk about a mountain and there's like a particular peak and like that's the point, you know, that, you know, maybe this event took place. But Mount Carmel really isn't a, a particular point. It's a, it's a range of mountains. Um, and so we don't know exactly where that confrontation would have taken place. So we went to the place that commemorates uh, where Elijah would have confronted, you know, could have confronted, but um, it could have happened at different sort of places along there. What we do know is that there's clear evidence of of 
the the Canaanites prior to the the Jewish people uh, coming in, and and then the Israelites who had uh, uh, began to worship other gods doing that in these high places. So it wouldn't have been at all um, uh, uh, out of sync for Elijah in the biblical story to say, meet me up on top of Mount Carmel and we'll see whether your God uh, sort of brings down um, fire to consume uh, the sacrifice. So, so we were able to be in this place, which is beautiful. So there's one other little note that's of kind of, of interest, I think, is that when we look at the story in 1 Kings chapter 18, it says that Elijah rebuilt an altar. It doesn't say that he built an altar, but he actually rebuilt it. Well, prior to the time that Solomon built the temple, Yahweh was being worshipped on high places throughout the land of Israel. When the temple was built with Solomon, that the worship of Yahweh was supposed to happen then and the temple and not on these high places. So if, if Elijah was going to um, worship Yahweh on top of Mount Carmel, he was going to have to rebuild the altar to um, Yahweh, which is, again, what the text tells us in 1 Kings chapter 18. So, so we have this beautiful viewpoint on top of Mount Carmel, and in particular, we're looking over the, uh, the, the Valley of Jezreel, which is very sort of significant in biblical history and just world history. Um, it's on the King's Highway, essentially, if, if every, any sort of uh, incoming trade or armies would come in from the northeast, say from the direction of Syria, and they would travel through this valley and over towards the Mediterranean Sea. And so if you controlled this valley, then you, um, you know, could keep invaders out or you could, um, you know, tax traders or whatever the case might be. And so we are just looking over this beautiful valley. This is a valley, for example, where Gideon fought the Midianites or um, it's a, a valley where, um, we see Josiah confronting the Pharaoh, Nico, or those kinds of events that are taking place. So it's even where David and Jonathan uh, lost to the Philistines and lost their life was in sort of on the eastern part of that valley. So we're just looking over that valley and just really beautiful. So um, one of the r- real significant sort of civilizations that's overlooking this valley is, is Megiddo. And um, I want Don to sort of share about that remarkable uh, uh, place in civilization. Yeah, I think I understood Megiddo a little, a lot better this time going there. We had more time, and uh, and it is situated, as John says, uh, strategically so that any empire who wants to gain control, uh, for instance, whether it's from the, from the southwest in Egypt or the northeast in Mesopotamia, Along the Euphrates Tigris Valley, um, they need this this strip of land that we would call Palestine, Lebanon, the, which is in a lot of literature called the Levant, which means the rising, the east. But this this that strip on the east, until anybody in the Roman Empire, for instance, who looking, you know, considering the Roman Empire as the world, what's on the east? This little strip of land, and I call it a, a kind of a land bridge because. Because in the West is water, salt water. Uh, and one of our guides once said, you know, Israel's never had a navy. We, we, <laughs> we stay on the land. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, the sea was dangerous. But on the East, there was another kind of sea called the desert. And if you were going to go from Egypt, for instance, to Mesopotamia, to what is now Iraq, uh, you would have to 
if you want to own, if you want to conquer, if your armies are going to be successful, you need to have this trade route. You need to own this strip of land that we now call Israel. And uh, Megiddo is situated on a high point. It was it was necessary for any conqueror to hold this this mountain. It has twenty five layers of tell. Uh, when we were there, I think we might have heard a, a few la- later, but recent uh, recent literature says there are 25 layers, and it dates back as as, as far as 4000 BC. Can you explain that for people who don't know how what a tell? Yeah, how that works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was as I understand it, uh, you know, a, a city they would build wall, you know, walls. So a city, a town, if it were going to be fortified, would have a wall around it. Um, time passes, conquerors come, they they conquer. There's destruction, um, and the higher you are, the more defensible, the defensible your position is. And so you don't clear away the rubble. You build on top of it, and you continue to build on top of it. I understand Manhattan, New York, is about six feet above above the original Manhattan that the hmm. Dutch settled uh, for the kind of the same reasons. But, you know, so a tell is kind of the name for it's a It's a pile of cities, really, right? Mm-hmm. And so Megiddo has 25 layers. Of wow. cities, right? I mean, in in California, we think old is a hundred hundred years old, and uh, I don't know what you think in Texas, but it's sure not four thousand years. Much probably. bigger. It's bigger. <laughs> <laughs> and, and better, as I understand it. Whenever I'm in Texas, uh, so Megiddo is one of those places that you. It's a must-have place, and it's in terms of strategic importance. It's mentioned in the Bible. I think one source says six six books. It's it's at least mentioned in Joshua, Judges, and First Kings. Um, Megiddo is one of Solomon's capitals. It's also a place where King Ahab, the notorious northern king of Israel, uh, married to Jezebel. Uh, not many families name their daughters Jezebel anymore, <laughs> or their sons Ahab, if they know the stories. Uh, but they held the city as well. Uh, the 14th century Amarna tablets record that the prince of Megiddo asked Egypt for military help against the king of Shechem, you know, a city to the south. Um, the Assyrians write about its capture in 732. John alluded to some of this. Second Kings says that two kings of Judah, Ahaziah and Josiah, were killed there. Um, there are several features that I'd like to talk about, if that's all right, that correlate with the biblical record. And I got this from different sources, mainly from um, a, a book um, co-authored by um, Norman Geisler uh, on archaeology of the Bible. But it, it was it, this echoed what we were we have learned when we've been in Israel, and especially this last time. Again, we spent more time there than I've ever spent there before. Um, here's one. First Kings 9 says that King Solomon was the fortifier of Megiddo, also of Hazor and Gizor, Gezer. These are three important cities. Hazor was on that same King's Highway, that Via Maris, the that important international trade route. And in Solomon's United Kingdom, of course, he held all that area. Um, Solomon fortified Megiddo by making improvements in the walls, palace, and gate system. So that's in the Bible. Famous archaeologist Yigal Yadin of Hebrew University, when he's working on this site, recognized Solomon's style that it matched, in fact, his his work at these other two cities, uh, Hatzor and Gatesir. Um which is pretty important. It's uh, there's there's doubt among the the more liberal or the the doubters, the more critical, skeptical archaeologists called sometimes called the minimalist camp, um, that doubt whether David and Solomon were anything more than local tribal chieftains. Uh, 
And uh, this would say, this would be consistent, the finding at Megiddo, that Solomon indeed had power beyond just, you know, the Judean boundaries. Um, second thing, early in the 20th century, a seal was found at Megiddo belonging to a servant of King Jeroboam of Israel. In fact, it says, belonging to Shema, the servant of Jeroboam. And that's considered, you know, the, the king that also didn't have a very good reputation in northern Israel. Then the third thing I'll mention is archaeologists have discovered the large water system, which we walked through, didn't we? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you remember about the water? I'm just walking through it. I just remember it was a long way down. Is that with all <laughs> the stairs? All under the stairs. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yes. A little freaky. I know. It's it's you go down, 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 and then you go then you, in a tunnel for a while. Um, the dimensions, it says the shaft descends 120 feet. That would be where the stairs mm -hmm. were. And then is connected to a freshwater spring by over 200 feet of tunnel, um, which now you can go and walk through. And it's built to withstand a siege without having to go outside the walls to get water, which it seems to be a theme. Mm -hmm. If you're a king threatened by a conqueror, that you need fresh water. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about that a little later regarding mm -hmm. Jerusalem. Yeah, I think you know, just to even understand sort of like a water shaft there. So if you if you have a, a a very dry climate like what they have in Israel, you need and you need to be at a high place so that you can defend a position. But the water spring is at a low place. And you've sort of built this walled city up here. If your invaders come and they cut you off from the water, right, then you're really in trouble. So they had to figure out ways to how do we hide that water source and bring it up to us, right? So they build these massive shafts, um, which were just really through, remarkable. Through solid rock. Through solid rock. Right. <laughs> so, so. Right. And it also tells you something about the size of the city, the importance of the city, the, the population of the city. Just the the massive effort it took, you know. If you're gonna, if you're not gonna have fresh water, you you can't have a city. Mm -mm. It's also it was interesting to me up on the northern part of Israel how different it looked. And mm -hmm. Israel is for as small as it is, it's like the size of New Jersey. Mm -hmm. It has almost every different kind of place on earth in a, in a sense, you know, deserts and get the Dead Sea, which is wild, and it's got mountains and ocean. And yep. In the winter, you can ski on Mount Hermon in, a, in the north. Yeah. yeah. So, it's, but, so, but up north where we're talking about, it's, it's real lush and green, mm -hmm. and there's these, we call them mountains. Don's from Wyoming, so it's a hill. <laughs> it's, you know, they're 3,000 mm -hmm. feet, 2,500 feet or so. But mm -hmm. you got these mountains we're talking about, but there's green and there's, you know, some trees mm -hmm. and there's farm land and uh, it's really it's really pretty and you don't have to go very far before it looks so different. Mm -hmm. That's yep. one of the things mm -hmm. that's just struck me being in Israel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like Southern California. There are lush places yeah. and then within an hour you're in the desert. Yep. And yep. that's similar in Israel. Yeah. All right. Where are we going next? We're moving. To, we're moving down. Uh, we're moving across to the Sea of Galilee. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and we, of course, in, on our way there, we were able to see places like Nazareth or Cana and that sort of thing. But uh, um, when we we got to Sea of Galilee, boy, that's just again, just like you said, um, Blaine, it's just it's beautifully different, right? So, um, and. 
the place that we uh, went initially when we went to the Sea of Galilee was a town called Magdala. So, in fact, that's where we stayed. That's the we stayed in a hotel at, at Magdala while we were at, around the Sea of Galilee for a few days. And um, Magdala is just a fascinating find of of the last couple of decades, really. So. Um, so it's right on the Sea of Galilee. It's about halfway up on the on the western side, and uh, it's a very preserved uh, first century community. So when the Romans came in at the uh, sort of the end of the um, seventh decade <laughs> so, of the first century uh, and destroyed the city, it was never really rebuilt. So there wasn't things on top of and top and top of it. Certainly, sediment came over it, but um, uh, you know, oftentimes in these sort of archaeological digs, you know, like at Megiddo, there's so many layers that you ca- it's hard, you can't really even get down to the bottom mm-hmm. layer, right? Mm-hmm. But but in Magdala, it was quite easy for them to sort of discover, you might say. Um, although nobody dug there at all until somebody wanted to build a hotel, right? The hotel we stayed <laughs> the at. The hotel right. we stayed at. That's right. They start to dig and go, oh, no, I don't think we're going to be able to build a hotel here. With all <laughs> there this goes stuff. the schedule. <laughs> there goes the schedule. So, But uh, um, the, the, the fellow is actually a Catholic priest who was building a retreat center there with this hotel. He, he decided and sort of working with the, the people – that uh, you know, so the Israeli Antiquities Department, hey, maybe we can build this retreat center around these findings. And, of course, it's, it's a perfect way to do it, right? You could stay at the hotel and see these remarkable findings. So, um, so of course, the communities around the, the Sea of Galilee, they would have been fishing communities largely. So you ought to find in the, um, uh, in the archaeological digs, you ought to find fish markets. And you do. So just uh, uh, a matter of feet outside of the hotel, there's uh, the fish markets there. So the disciples of Jesus, many of them who were fishermen and would be catching their fish and and they would stop in one of these towns and they would sell their fish. So it's almost certain that the disciples would have been in Magdala at different times, right? They would have sold at different cities and this would have been been one of them. So here they would have, would have been... Um, Perhaps most um, sort of spectacular there in Magdala, and this is just, it's right outside the windows of the lobby of the hotel, (laughs) is um, what has been found is a first century synagogue. And it's it's a synagogue that only was in existence for really right around the life of Jesus. So we know it was destroyed by the Romans in, in, you know, 67, 68 uh, A.D., um, but we have evidence that uh, it wasn't built until, until about 15 AD. So under one of the cornerstones was a, um, a coin uh, from Tiberius. So the, that's one of the, when builders would build things to sort of date it, they would put a coin of the reigning ruler, put it under a cornerstone, and people would sort of know this was when it was built. So, well, Tiberius didn't come into sort of co-regency until 12 AD, sole regency until 14 AD. So we're you know, probably 15 AD, maybe even a little bit after that. So it's only in existence from 15 to about 65 or 67 AD. It's, that wasn't around very long. And that's exactly the period that Jesus lived in. So if we want to know what synagogues looked like in Jesus's day, you can 
see it there at Magdala. Now, of course, when the Romans came in, they knocked down the walls, but but they they really only knocked uh, the synagogue down there to maybe about three foot walls, maybe I would say. So you can still see all the flooring and the benches around the outside and the mosaic floor and the plaster on the walls. And I mean, it's you really get a sense of the size and the shape and the doorways of, of a first century synagogue. Now, one of the finds there was this, a stone, a beautifully, beautifully carved stone. And uh, um, the belief is, is that stone which was on a pedestal at one point in time, as a very large stone, was the stone in which the synagogue ruler would pull out the scrolls and read the scriptures on. And so Jesus being with the disciples, traveling around the Sea of Galilee, often being on boats on the Sea of Galilee, it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility that Jesus was there in Magdala and he often spoke in synagogues. He could have been right at that synagogue opening the scrolls on that very rock that's, that's, that's there. So. Which is still in the lobby. Still in the lobby. It's that's in the right. lobby as kind of their prize, prize artifact. Yeah, it's yeah. really something else. So Now, Magdala, if that name sounds a little bit familiar, so, so we have Mary Magdalene in the scripture. That means Mary of Magdala. So this is the town that she was from. Now, she had seven spirits, we're told, evil spirits in the scripture. And Jesus healed her, right, cast out those spirits. Now, as someone that was uh, possessed by seven evil spirits, she wouldn't have gone looking for Jesus. Like we see sometimes in the Gospels, right, where somebody who's, who's maybe crippled or whatever, they go to find Jesus or their friends take uh, them to Jesus so that they can be healed. Well, she wouldn't have been doing that. She would have been in Magdala. In fact, I think that's why she's called Mary Magdalene, because she became famous as the one who was healed. And so she became the Mary of Magdala, right? There were a lot of Marys. <laughs> that's right. Yes. So that, again, is an indication that Jesus was there in Magdala. Um, and again, likely even teaching at that first century synagogue, which you can get a really great feel of. So really a great sight to be at there on the Sea of Galilee. It's really amazing, and one of the things that strikes me listening to both of you is if the New Testament was was made up, right, then you wouldn't expect to see any of this stuff, mm. or or it would be talking like the Chronicles of Narnia or some book series where it, it it's just it's not even a real place. But if it is real, you'd expect to find synagogues that date here and towns that are called this and all the things that we're going to talk about we haven't gotten to yet, but all of these things just line up so well with the history that's in the Bible. It's mm -hmm. amazing. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, we're going to travel a little bit north All right. to um, a place where uh, there may be a hotel there, but we didn't stay there in Capernaum. Capernaum is one of the most mentioned cities along the Sea of Galilee. It's in the northwest side, pretty far north. And um, Jesus apparently, and according to the scriptures, makes that his place of residence in Peter's house. Uh, that's where he heals Peter's uh, mother-in-law. That's how we know Peter was married. <laughs> and uh, mentions a synagogue there. I hope he didn't have a mother-in-law without being married because no. that would not be fair. <laughs> no, no. That should just be wrong, yeah. 
and uh, and it, perhaps that's where the uh, the friends brought the cripple and let him through a thatched roof. Well, there in Capernaum now, it's quite an exciting site for archaeologists. Several things are there. Um, there's a, there's a synagogue that's a fourth or fifth century synagogue where that you can walk in into. Um, I don't think it had a roof because it's it's that old. Uh, but uh, it sits on a a foundation that is of another rock substance called you know, black basalt, and uh, and black basalt was a was something that first century builders used. And what's interesting about the way this four, fifth century synagogue sits, it sits like its foundation rocks are sitting on top of this black basalt foundation, and it's a little bit out of line. I think it was probably out of line because some perhaps uh, Byzantine architect who were the, you know, the Christians after Constantine. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting way ahead of myself. No, it would be Christians after Constantine or uh, others would, would build it. They, they saw that it was not in line and so they lined it up, which means it was a, a little bit off the basalt foundation. Now in, in Luke, I think chapter six, when a, when a centurion who's a Roman officer over about a hundred men uh, came because his slave was sick, his servant was sick, and he comes to Jesus to heal the servant. Well, he sends actually messengers to come. And the Jews who are part of this message to Jesus are pleading on behalf of uh, the centurion, please help this man because he's a good man and he's worthy because, and he's the one that built our synagogue. So it's interesting is that Basalt Foundation Synagogue, which is first century, is probably the foundation that was underwritten by, by, this, by this Roman official. It's just an interesting little peek into the relationships between the Romans and the Jews during that time. Um, and and just, just a number of feet away, I mean, just a minute's walk toward the sea is, is this, what I would call a church upon a church upon a church. And what what they found was that – and there's a little village. I mean, there's a city there that they have unearthed. And so they see house after house after house. They see these houses. And they 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 believe that all of these houses had thatched roofs, not stone roofs. And uh, and it, it matches the – you know, when the people – when these guys, these four guys bring their their guy who can't – their friend who can't walk, they – they work through the thatch, and it's a messy deal, of course, but it's not a stone roof. It makes sense. Well, they found this house that was a first first century that matched the houses, except it had features that that were different than and uh, different than a regular house. For instance, they found it the walls were all plastered. The regular houses weren't plastered, and instead of finding household items, they found things that you would find in a meeting place. And this is the smallest little place. This house apparently was turned into kind of a worship center. And there are dozens, I believe, of of symbols, Christian symbols, messages, like uh, names like the Lord Jesus Christ in, in four languages, Aramaic, Latin, Syriac, and, um, uh, and Greek. Lord Jesus Christ, the name of Peter. Um, there are names of Christian pilgrims and various blessings and prayers. So subsequent to Jesus' life and ministry, and probably after Constantine, 
you know, beginning of the fourth century. Pilgrims are coming to this place for some reason. Why this place? Well, we know Peter's house was there. We know that was where Jesus stayed, where he lived during his Galilean ministry. And no wonder then Christians, if they knew this, in fact, we have a record from a fourth century pilgrim named Egeria. I didn't, hadn't read about her until just recently. In, and she writes, in Capernaum, what is more? So this is in the 300s. What is more, the house of the prince of the apostles has been turned into a church, leaving its original walls, however, quite unchanged. And then a, a, a fourth century octagonal church was then built around it and over this house later. And probably to protect it and to commemorate it. And then the 5th century, an even more substantial octagonal church structure was built around it and over it. And a 6th century pilgrim refers to that as Peter's house. And today, if you go there, there's another church that looks like a, a big spaceship with, with legs that is over the church, which is over the church, which was over the church, <laughs> which is over the first church. And so... I, our, our guide and other guides that I've had and, and the books, with when you read them, this is, I like John's term, most certainly uh, Peter's house, which is pretty amazing. And, and then also, not that they found Jesus's boat, even though they call it the Jesus boat, when, I don't know when that was, uh, forget the year, when, they, when, when the Galilean region in Israel was was uh, hit by a big drought, and the, the level of the lake went down. The Sea of Galilee went, uh, looks like a lake to me. Yeah, I think the 1980s is when they— 1980s, mm -hmm. okay. And so, and, and they find this, they find this boat, which is, what, 20-ish feet long, something mm -hmm. like that, mm -hmm. maybe. Mm -hmm. And it's made out of several different woods, and they, it was quite a trick to get, because once it was exposed to the air, it would just crumble. So they used like foam that contractors use to insulate. They, they covered the whole thing as they unearthed it, covered it with foam, and then floated it to a place where they could um, kind of rehabilitate it. But you can go there to Capernaum, and they have a room, which we have been in, that has this boat. And it's like it's all anchored by, it's like a, you know, when, like a hip replacement, you have all this metal in you. Well, the bone has metal throughout holding it together, but you, but it's the original wood. Uh, well, original wood as they found it, because it's, it has like, I don't know, a hundred different kinds of wood in it, something like that. It's, it's amazing that it sounds like, you know, what fishermen would do. They wouldn't buy a new boat if it leaked. They would go find a piece of wood and patch it. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a patched boat that everybody can see there. It's pretty cool. So Capernaum is a, is a site that is a, like a must-see. And um, and people see it as as uh, one of those places where, yeah, this is uh, this is where Jesus was. It was my favorite place. Mm -hmm. Was it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you guys if you get to the place where you think oh, I was my favorite, but that was my favorite. And it was because if you think about like what we learn of Jesus, say like Philippians 2 or where he's described as being uh, – you know, just very humble and uh, obviously a servant and those kind of things. But he's also God who became man. And you just to see where he chose to live for that period of his ministry was really amazing to me because it's just not – it's pretty. That It is pretty, kind of like all of Israel is a little bit pretty, but it's right on the 
water and all that. But it's also – it's you would never live there in the little house. That, I mean you're talking about the houses we're talking about are like the size of the room that we're in mm-hmm. with a thatched roof. I mean it's obviously real rudimentary 2,000 years ago and this is where God chose to right. live. Mm-hmm. Right. And we've sort of dressed it up. Right now, we've dressed it up with a modern church, and and you know the the first house, which was probably Peter's house, um, they had they put a stone roof on it at some point before even the fourth century when they built. So it was starting to be dressed up, but to your point, it wasn't a dressed up location. It was yeah. a humble. It was a humble place. And you contrast it with Caesarea, hmm. like we were talking about, right. where <laughs> the palace, you know. Right. Yeah. And it's just so mm. different and it's uh, it's not a story. You would not make that up if mm. you were making up a story, mm-hmm. I don't think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the king of the universe came as a baby and, and lived in a humble, humble little house yeah. uh, up, in the, up in Galilee. Yep. Well, one more place. One more place, okay. Before we finish okay. this episode here. And then next episode, we'll, we'll take a look at some things down in the Jerusalem area. But one more place is kind of up in the northern part of Israel. Um, so after Capernaum, we went up to Caesarea Philippi. So before we started our trip in Caesarea Maritima, now we're at Caesarea Philippi, which is about uh, 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Um, Named in honor, of course, the Caesar of, of the time, as as well as Philip, who was the tetrarch or the ruler in that region at that time. So, um, now when you're you're going up to to Caesarea Philippi, and so you get out of your vehicle and you, you kind of walk along this path to get toward the the center of the of, of the city, you're just on this incredibly lush trail. A, a lot of Israel is pretty dry and deserty, right? So, because there's not a lot of natural sort of fresh water sources. But um, we're traveling sort of north of the Sea of Galilee. We're on sort of the the northern Jordan Valley. So, there's the Jordan River that goes from south of the Sea of Galilee towards Jerusalem, okay? Um, Or at least south doesn't go through Jerusalem, but it goes south that way. But there's also a northern Jordan Valley that's sort of north of the Sea of Galilee. And so, there's sort of river tributaries that are going there. And so, it's very lush and green. And just walking along this trail and you just feel like, man, I'm going to this incredibly... um, uh, uh, peaceful sort of worship place, right? So, I mean, it's just... And it feels like you're from Washington State. Mm, I lived in yeah. Oregon as a kid. It feels like you're walking yeah. through a, 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 one of our northwestern mm-hmm. states. That's right. Yeah, it does. It's just very green. And, and it's, there's a sense of coolness there and, again, like a peace. And then you come out of that and you see what that city was. Um, why it was a significant city. So prior even to the time of Philip the Tetrarch, going back a couple of hundred years really to Alexander the Great, this site was a place where the god Pan was worshipped. And uh, so it was called Panius before, um, you know, Philip got on on the scene. And so... uh, here was this really this pagan center of worship. So you're going through this really beautiful sort of lush greenery, and it's like, oh, this peaceful, like I'm going to a Christian retreat center almost right through. And no, you're going to this place where you worship um, Pan and other gods as well. Um, the centerpiece of the sort of worship of Pan, and Pan was a sort of the god of the 
the wild, the nature of, of shepherds, of goats, uh, kind of a, sort of a multifaceted God. He, uh, it was depicted as being a goat from about its waist down and uh, a human from the waist up. And, uh, and the centerpiece of, of this worship was this cave um, where sacrifices would go on to the God of Pan. And then there's this sort of huge rock wall outside of the cave and these little insets sort of deal where, where there were statues of, of Pan. And again, sort of people would worship um, Pan there. There's even inscri- inscriptions found above these little insets that talk about the worship of, of Pan. Now, what's really curious is when we look at Scripture is that Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. And I just can't imagine very many Jews wanting to go to Caesarea Philippi, right? So not, at least not any respectable Jews, <laughs> really. So, and not to sort of this worship center and a rabbi of all things, right? Taking his disciples there, why would he do that? And yet it's there in that scene in Caesarea Philippi that Jesus asks his disciples, well, who do people say that I am, right? And the response is, well, you know, some say John the Baptist, some, you know, say prophets, maybe Jeremiah. And he said, well, who do you say that I am? And that's where sort of Peter pipes up, right? And Peter says, well, you are the Messiah, right? You are the son of God we have been, been waiting for. And... Uh, and Jesus commends Peter for saying those words and sort of, and kind of coming to that place of understanding. But then he says that, he says, on this rock, and there's sort of different interpretations, is that rock referring to Peter or is it, you know, <laughs> you know or is it talking about Christ? Is it talking, what exactly was that rock sort of speaking of? So it's the rock, the church, what, you know, what is the rock? So, um, but he says, on this rock, um, sort of my my church, it, it won't be defeated by the, even the gates of Hades. So, you know, Scripture itself says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So, like, even the greatest of evil, right, even where evil is entering into the world, um, uh, my church can't be held back. What I'm going to build can't be held back. You think about Jesus speaking these words in Caesarea Philippi, right? Before this great worship place of, of Pan. And talk about a word picture. <laughs> so um, uh, this, in many ways, was the gates of Hades, right? So this was the place of, of hell, um, uh, this, this worship of, of Pan and the sacrifices, child sacrifices that would even go on there. And Jesus says, what I am building it cannot even be defeated by this. And so uh, uh, a, a remarkable um, teaching moment, I'm sure, for the disciples as Jesus was there in Caesarea Philippi, which he probably couldn't have really done that sort of a lesson like that any other place in Israel as he could have done there. So um, it really was an incredible sight to see. It is um... That's and why you need to go to Israel. That's right. You need to go to Israel. <laughs> and, and the irony that uh, it's, a, it's a dramatic irony, I think, that there's a place of child sacrifice mm. and human sacrifice. And Jesus, at that point, mm. tells the disciples, the mm-hmm. Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem, mm. be arrested, tortured, killed, 
and third day rise from the dead. Mm -hmm. And Peter says, no way, man, Mm -hmm. no way. Mm -hmm. And that Jesus, the son of God, has laid down the way that the church is going to begin is by the son of God himself being sacrificed Mm -hmm. and taking on the sins of the world. And uh, I, I just think the um, integrity of the Gospels, one sign of it is, is the, the, the doubting disciples. Mm. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. In fact, they objected to the whole plan. But it all happened right there. Mm-hmm. Pretty fun. Well, guys, thank you for the tour of northern Israel. Uh, we're going to pick it up. Next week, we're going to go down south to Jerusalem. And hear all about some of the amazing evidence down there. Uh, really appreciate you both being on the podcast and looking forward to the rest of this series. It's going to be fun. You are very welcome. It's been fun. Well, uh, thank you all for listening to the Search Podcast. If you have enjoyed this, please give us a rating or a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. And until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.